Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Welcome back, everyone. To another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Only one tongue coming at you today, um, as per usual, on a Wednesday. Uh, what a minute. Well, it's actually Friday. This will be released on a Wednesday, so happy hump day, everybody. All right. What are we doing? Oh, that's right. Alfred North Whitehead. We're going to continue on Alfred North Whitehead. I want to tell you, I have an episode uh, ready to go, um, so I'll probably break up Whitehead next time with... A little bit of a sojourn. Um, had an interaction with a fellow on uh, on Twitter who goes by uh, the handle um, Footnotes to Plato. Footnotes, the uh, number two, Plato. And it happens to be, obviously, uh, we've talked about it, but it happens to be a reference to Alfred North Whitehead himself who said that um, all of Western philosophy consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. So, so... Um, it was a little bit random, um, the connection, because I just, I've just i been talking a lot about Whitehead and uh, including some stuff online, and he picked up on one of them. And turns out he's a college professor on California, and um, he uh, focuses on Whitehead and uh, process philosophy, so it's kind of an interesting connection. And uh, I went onto his website and watched a video that he told me to watch, really, um, about a different person, but one that we've talked about on the podcast before, Rudolf Steiner. So I watched the video, and they talked a lot about Plato and a lot about Whitehead and very little about Steiner. So I was a little disappointed, but I wanted to talk about that one, so I'll have some stuff to say on that front. Uh, But today we're going to continue on with Whitehead, and I want to say the last time we got together to talk Whitehead, I told you that it was my favorite reading in Whitehead so far. So what that last chapter was for me was a bunch of the content that I was hoping to hear from Whitehead and a bunch of the talk about God, really, and um, and his metaphysical system and where, you know, where the fundamental or the absolute principles are. And uh, we talked a lot about that last time. So for me, that was great. I loved it. Um, this time, though, for the following chapter, it was, if I'm being honest, it was my least favorite reading in Whitehead so far. And hopefully for that reason, this will be a shorter episode. But I guess what I want to say is I skipped a lot of it because I didn't think it was interesting. And I thought it was wildly speculative. And I'll, get, I'll, I'll explain this. I'll, you know, I'll get into this in, in more detail. But it seemed to me like Whitehead was over-explaining a bunch of things. You know, earlier when we were reading Whitehead and he was talking about all these fundamental 
constituents of his model, of his process model of reality, he was talking about all kinds of things like eternal objects and actual entities and concrescence and all kinds of things. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I don't think he did a great job explaining what any of that means. So I've, I've cobbled it all together as best I can. I get some idea of what he means. Um, it doesn't seem to me like my understanding of Whitehead is the same as you know other people's understanding of Whitehead, and uh, maybe I'm wrong. Um, you know, I'll say this time and time again. Maybe I don't understand it well enough. You know, maybe it's over my head. Um, it doesn't seem to be. I seem to. I, it seems to me that I understand what I'm reading. Uh, it's not easy, but I'm getting there. Um, but it wasn't clear to me when he was talking about laying out this model that it was clear what any of these ideas really mean. And the question of origins was also there. It's like, okay, well, where do eternal objects come from? Okay, well, where do actual entities come from? They don't just exist, do they? And, um, you know, it's just it just wasn't clear. And then as the reading goes on, he talks more and more about mind in a way that many idealists will talk about mind. And I'm sympathetic to that. But then he will, and he, he's done it before and he's going to do it today, he tries to discredit idealism. Um, it, it doesn't seem like there's any context to it either. He's like... We'll get into it. You'll see where, it, it, to me, it seems like Whitehead is a closet idealist, and I really just can't see it any other way. It's harder for me to see it any other way. And this idea of the creative advance that we've talked about, which is really what Whitehead means when he says God, although he uses the word God to mean something entirely different, when he says creative advance, he seems to mean God. By that, he means something like that which makes experience possible, really, in a nutshell. Um, it's whatever is fundamental, whatever is absolute, whatever is behind all of this. That's what he calls the creative advance. But Whitehead tries to make it out like creativity is somehow it's somehow a emergent. It's somehow a side effect of of experience. And yet it's not experience isn't possible without it. So this is this is the confusing thing for me. Whitehead's very wishy-washy when it comes to origins. So, again, all this stuff really not clear to me, not as clear as I hope it would be. And then this chapter comes along, and it goes into extraordinary detail, talking about all of the nuts and bolts of the mechanics of experience and how they, uh, how they interact and how they ingress and how, you know, um, concrescence is achieved and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, well, if you didn't define for me the fundamental ideas well enough for me to kind of get fully on board... And now you're jumping into this super detailed explanation about the mechanics of how it all works. Um, I think you're putting the cart before the horse, and this is how I feel. It, it almost seems to me like Whitehead is, in this chapter, he's trying to create a bunch of perceived evidence by explaining all of the nitty-gritty details. And that's supposed to give support for the arguments he made earlier in the, in the, in the work about, you know, his model and all the components of experience that we just talked about. Um, that's how it seems to me. So you let me know what you think, but he basically goes into all these arbitrary categories that exist and we'll see some of it today, but not a lot of it. Cause like I said, I just cut that shit out. It was, it was to me, it seemed unjustified, very little evidence and way too explicitly detailed. And if we go back to the beginning of Whitehead when he said, look, we're going to get speculative here. We're going to talk about metaphysics. And 
you know, there's going to be a lot of guesswork and a lot of suggestions and a lot of imagination going on. But he says, rest assured, where I have to speculate, I am going to make sure that it's logically consistent. I'm going to make sure that things flow from one another so that even though I'm speculating, I'm going to keep it controlled. I'm going to keep it logical. I'm going to keep it coherent. And uh, that's going to allow me to speculate with some more certainty than if I was just purely you know, using my imagination and making up this, you know, as I go along. Um, and in this chapter, it seemed to me like he was doing a lot of that. It seemed like he was doing a lot of that. So without further ado, let's jump in. I call this episode Existing Within, Time and Whitehead's Environment. All right, we're going to talk a little bit about chaos and order today, and we did the last time we got together, um, so we're just going to kind of re- maybe recap a little bit and add to what we started talking about with chaos and order last week. The first bit I'm going to call environment of chaos and order, and Whitehead says, an actual entity is governed by its datum. There can be no transgression of the limitations inherent in the datum. The character of an organism depends on its environment. The environment is various societies of actual entities. All right, so let's start with this little bit here. So an actual entity, we know that by that he means um, something that exists in reality, but it's something like an experience. Um, An actual entity is governed by its datum. Now, we have to ask, if you don't remember, what does he mean by that? What's the data that creates this actual entity? entity, this thing that actually exists. Um, apparently it's created by data. Um, he explains, and as explained previously, that an actual entity is composed of other actual entities. So organisms exist within organisms, exist within organisms, and you get this fractal picture um, that, that Whitehead seems to, um, seems to kind of put, put in front of us. And so every actual entity, every experience is composed of other experiences that came before it in combination with each other in various patterns. And all of those patterns and connections between experiences create new experiences. And they sort of supersede the old experiences and become the new world uh, to replace the old one. And so there's that data, the data of kind of your own composition of where you came from. We can see some of that if we if we make biological parallels like, you know, the information in my parents' DNA, for instance. You can use that information to, um, you know, to create a model of me, let's say. So something like that. But then he also says that the objectified world is also the data. And that's what it seems like to us. It's like we look out at the world and all of that can, includes... Uh, or consists of data, uh, things we can learn, uh, things we can use to modify our behavior, to make new inventions, to un- you know control and understand ourselves and the world better. That's what's out there, you know, ripe for the picking. Uh, but remember, to Whitehead, the world, the objectified world, the world of objects out there that it seems to us um, exists externally. It's actually not external at all. You know, there's only there's only experience, and so the thing we are. And the thing the world is, aren't any different from one another. We're both experiences. The difference that, that seems to us is that we have the perspective of a subject. We have a subjective experience and a subjective perspective. 
So we look at the world as objects. They seem to us to be not the same thing as us, but something other than us. And it seems that way, not because it is that way, but because we have this extra quality of being a subject. So the fact that we have consciousness, the fact that we look out at the world, um, it's, it's basically like looking out at ourself, at the experience that we are or that we are a part of or both. And because we have this subjective perspective, uh, the world then seems to us to be objects in space and time. So it's ourselves and the composition of ourselves, you know, where we came from, but also the world uh, around us that's really just a part of ourselves um, anyway. So all of that is the data that governs an actual entity. So you can see, and he goes on, he says, there can be no transgression of the limitations inherent in the data. And I don't know that I entirely agree with that. I mean, my my thought is, you know, it seems to me that process... Um, you know, I use that in the Whiteheadian sense of the experience, you know, the experience that is reality. Process makes available all data, you know, potentials. Those are the those are the eternal objects and the actual things that exist. You know, it makes all that available because it's all available within itself, within this experience that we are, that reality is. How is it not accessible to me? You know, it's all accessible and, and novelty emerges um, and transformation is caused um, by, um, you know, introduction of new information or creation of new things and new possibilities. And that's happening all the time. It seems to me like that is transgressing limitations, you know? I mean, for Christ's sake, when, the, when we went to the moon in 1969, that was never possible before, you know? Not even thinkable before, but we did it. Isn't that transgressing of limitations? Doesn't it seem like that to you? It seems like that's possible, so I'll take some, you know, conflict with Whitehead there. But I get the point he's making. You know, if we go back to the example of actual entities being made of other actual entities, and we use this biological analogy of my parents' DNA, you can see if you take my parents' DNA and you lay it out there, there's only so many possible combinations of, of things that could result in, in me, right? So there's limitations in that. You know, I mean, if we don't talk about mutations and things like that, you can say that there, there's a limited possibility for the types of children that my parents might have been able to produce based upon that that DNA. You know, you can also say that the limitations of the world are like that. It's like if we go back to the moon example, um, you know, the way that gravity is, the force of gravity, that was a limitation. You know, it allowed us to jump pretty high, you know, but it wouldn't allow us to escape the, the pull of gravity of the earth and go out into space. And we found a way around that, but you can see how even something like gravity is a limitation of what's possible. You know, if you, if you consider like a world that, that has a different gravity than earth, um, it might be possible for organisms to grow incredibly large or maybe impossible for them to grow incredibly large. Maybe they're only very small because the gravity is so strong. It's, it's pushing down so hard. It's keeping things from being able to, you know, exist in, in a, a sufficient size uh, or comparable size even. So you can see how certainly um, if we're thinking about our bodies and our and the world that we exist in, there are limitations built into that. So I think that's the point he's making. And okay, fair enough. Um, and then he says the character of an organism depends on its environment, like we just said. And the environment is, an, is a society or various societies of other actual entities. 
That's sort of what we've already said, but if we consider the objectified world, the world that seems like objects to us out there, that those things are all other actual entities like us. There are other experiences that, are, that we're a part of in this, in this unity of experience that we call process or, or reality, according to Whitehead, that objects, um, sophisticated, complex experiences, they're not just you know one simple thing. They're made up of all kinds of other experiences. That's why they're complex, and that's why they're dynamic. You know, there's all kinds of things going on that constitute that experience. And that's what he calls societies, groups of actual entities. And there's a biological parallel there as well, because when you consider experiences kind of coming together, joining together to create some more complex experience, we can look at even just the word society brings it to mind. You can look at human societies, you know, compare one human being to uh, a society of human beings. And what's possible from one human being? And what's possible from a society of human beings? You know, what can we do when we work together? Uh, what are we when we exist collectively like that? There's all kinds of interesting um, psychological things about that, like groupthink and um, diffusion of responsibility and things like that. It's like if I saw a, a innocent child drowning in a pond um, and I walk by and see it, you know, I'm going to be compelled to jump in and save that uh, that child. But if I'm standing around with a thousand other people and we're all watching the child drowned, nobody knows what to do. And oftentimes nobody will help because we all think somebody else, certainly somebody else is going to help. Um, so you can see how we behave as an individual versus how we believe, behave collectively uh, can be very different. And, you know, I might think to myself, um, there's all these problems, you know, that we as a society or as human beings that we could solve like cancer or something. As a one human being, I throw my hands up, you know, in the air. I have no way of, I don't know what the first thing about how to begin solving that problem. But as a society, as a society, we put our heads together and we organize and we can figure out ways to do miraculous things like curing cancer or going to the moon. Um, so, so I think it's important to understand that this is the way that Whitehead envisions the world. The world is made up of societies of actual entities. And all of that is organized. Societies are organized. And that's why they work. And that's why there's something specific. They're identifiable. This is the element of order that Whitehead is talking about. Then he says, spread through the environment. There may be entities which cannot be assigned to any society of entities. The societies in an environment will constitute its orderly element. And the non-social actual entities will constitute its element of chaos. Isn't that interesting? So you may have other experiences floating around that for one reason or another are not able to be social. They're not able to join in uh, you know, a, a unity with other experiences. So these, these are radicals that are swimming around in the midst of all these societies. These are the barbarians at the gate, you might say. He says, if there is to be progress beyond the limited ideals, the course of history must venture along the borders of chaos. Okay, it's amazing, really, for lots of reasons. I want to say that there's um, the picture I get 
it's kind of a it's kind of like a medieval um, map. Or if you guys have ever played like Civilization uh, uh, for PC or something, where you're building a civilization, it starts in the early early days of the prehistory, you know, like Stone Age, and you work your way up through the modern world, and you're exploring the world, and you're building your societies, and you're you're building your armies, and you're going out and marching against others. Um, so that kind of thing comes to mind, or maybe even like the height of the Roman Empire when when the uh, the Roman Empire had settled uh, most of Europe and uh, big chunks of the Middle East and North Africa, and uh, and created you know um, aquifers and aqueducts and roads and all kinds of things to connect them together, and suddenly all these societies are more organized. They're trading together. They're governed by the same laws. They're organized and they're working like they've never worked before. And they're benefiting like they've never benefited before. Uh, the Pax Romana comes to mind, the Roman peace. Um, so you have this big organized group um, that through through a lot of work and effort is do, are doing great things. And then the Goths show up, the Visigoths show up, or the Mongols show up, or whoever the, whoever it is. I don't know enough of the history, but these these barbarians, you know, they show up and they start they start uh, affecting the culture. You know, they bring in ideas that are unusual. They attack towns. They sack things. They they you know start creating chaos. They start breaking down the order. And what happens is a lot of bad things, but also long term a lot of good things that we don't think about. You know, we have, uh, eventually, we have a a greater unity that comes out of that. The Roman Empire falls and other, you know, other uh, uh, nations rise and uh, we find new ways of living together and trading and so forth. And now we're, now we're including ideas and thoughts and cultural components from these barbarian groups that, you know, that were the the biggest part of the fall, or maybe not the biggest part, but a big chunk of the fall of the order that existed before it. And the new order that comes about is something more inclusive. It's something more complete. It's something interesting and novel and new that never could have existed before. The creation of something new, right? And this is what Whitehead seems to be saying about these antisocial or non-social entities that are floating around amongst all this order. They're there. They're like raw material for some novel experience, something new, a new creation. You know, they're the barbarians at the gate. And then this last bit, this last sentence where he says, if there is to be progress beyond limited ideals, the course of history must venture along the borders of chaos. I just can't help but think of Jordan Peterson. I mean, that could have been something in Maps of Meaning easily. And Jordan Peterson says very, very similar things about the world being composed of chaos and order, and that there's something that mediates between the two. And to Jordan, that's something like consciousness or the divine hero from our myths, somebody that can go into the chaos and bring from that some treasure, something new, some new and novel thing that can be used to, you know, to make progress. Um, so it's often in myths, it's the treasure, it's the virgin, it's something like that. Uh, you go into the chaos, which is the fight with the dragon, or going into the underworld. And uh, from there, you know, from the barbarians at the gate, from these, these antisocial components, you get something new in the mix that gives you new possibilities. And according to Whitehead, that's what process really is. It's the generation, constant generation of novelty, of new experience um, from potential. All right, that brings me to the next bit. He says, 
Ordered experience is the result of schematization of thought. The process by which experiential unity is attained is modes of thought. Okay, so there's, there's more here, but this, I think, is what starts to give Whitehead away more as a closet idealist. Because what he says here is ordered experience. And by that, what he means, remember, actual entities are experience. The world around us is experience. So when he says ordered experience, he means an ordered world. And the one that we exist in that has rules, and space and time dimensions, and all the structure that we see, that's an ordered world. He says that is the result of schematization of thought. What does that mean? Categories of thought, the way we understand things. We have categories that are basic and fundamental, like causation, how we think things work. Substance, what we think things are made of. And the quality and quantity of things. You know, these are basic categories that we use to understand what we see when we look out at the world. And then he says the process by which experiential unity is attained. Right, unity of experience. That's the world and ourselves included. It is attained through modes of thought. So here we see thought twice. The ordered experience of the world. And the unity of everything is achieved by ordering and unity of thought. So an ordered world comes from ordered thought. So it seems like mind is coming in the picture, right? Thought, that's, that's something that comes only from mind as far as we know. So there's some sort of mind component here that's fundamental. It's where the world comes from. It's where experience comes from. Ties everything together. And order is the givenness of the world. And according to Whitehead, this results from organization of thought. And so it seems to me like what he's saying when he says organization of thought equals an organized world. He's saying that action in mind is action in the world. There is no distinction between mind and world. And we can understand that if we understand the world as something that exists, or at least is knowable to us, or, or experienceable to us, only as an experience. You know, we don't, I've said this many times, but we don't really know what the world is. We might even say we don't really know what, that if the world even exists, because all we have access to is our experience of it. And that might seem to be the same thing to you, but we're going to see in a bit how it's not. You know, I can have an experience. Well, I'll, let me save it. Let's, let's move on to the next section, which is called perception versus reception. Whitehead says, the process of feeling is the reception of the datum, which is potentiality becoming a unity, a, a, a unity of realization. Okay, so we know we have this data out there in the world that includes ourselves and our, you know, the components of ourselves um, and also the objectified world for us. All of that, that's the data. Now, he says the process of feeling is the reception of that data. And again, we're talking about perception versus reception, so we're going to talk about what that means, what the distinction is. See, he seems to say something like, 
we feel something. And there's not a big difference between saying feel and experience, by the way. I mean, you might think there are other ways of experiencing than feeling, but I don't exactly mean like feeling in terms of a sense of touch. I mean feeling in terms of internal sensations. And everything is like that. So we feel the potentiality into reality, right? It's, it's the feeling that makes it real. And we've talked about this many times. To Whitehead, it's the experience of something that makes it real. And that's why I call this episode Existing Within, because that's what, Whitehead, that's what Whitehead's model is, right? An experience within an experience within an experience. So we exist within ourself, like an experience in an experience, and he uses the word ingress to mean that, to, to mean bringing something within yourself, incorporating it into yourself so that it now exists, right? Because you exist and it's now a part of you. And that's how you've made this new thing exist. That's how you've made it real. It started out as something potential, whatever that means. That's not something that Whitehead has explained satisfactorily as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I do agree that there's such a thing. So I'll go along with it. You feel potentiality into actuality. Also, feeling is a quality of mind. I want to I I reinforce that. Feeling is something that exists in mind. So here we have another piece of evidence that to Whitehead, mind is something fundamental. All right, now he says, the philosophy of organism is practically identical with Locke. So now he's talking about John Locke again. He says he speaks of the ideas in the perceived objects and identifies them with ideas in the perceiving mind. The ideas in the objects have been appropriated by the perceiving mind. So there's a couple things in here that are, that are interesting. Now, Whitehead is saying he agrees with Locke about this. And let me just read this line for you again. He says, when he speaks of the ideas in the perceived objects... So I'll stop right there. Ideas in the perceived objects. What does that mean? It means seems to mean something like when we perceive an object in the world, that object either contains ideas or is made up of ideas. So Locke speaks of the ideas in the perceived objects. There must be then ideas in objects. Now you can understand that when you say, I look at uh, a rock or I look at the sun and I have an idea. I have a mental representation of what that is. Um, I might even be able to give you a cloud of associations that, of ideas that are attached to that. You know, the sun is uh, bright, light, heat, um, you know, um, uh, all, all sorts of things that you might think of that are, uh, that are associated with it. These are all ideas, right? They're all ideas, at least to us. The question is, whether there's anything real behind those ideas. I don't even know what I mean by real exactly when I say that. Anything objective. So, again, Locke speaks of the ideas in perceived objects and identifies them with ideas in the mind. The perceiving mind. So I ask, are there ideas in objects? Are they made of ideas? And what does this mean? seems to mean something like objects flow from the mind like ideas do. Something like that. Again, mind somehow being fundamental to this whole thing. Now he does want to 
provides some contrast with Locke because he doesn't agree with him all the way. He says there is a fundamental misconception in Locke. He assumes that the utmost primitiveness is to be found in sense perception. So at the most basic forms of experience to Locke are the things that we, that we sense, right? When we look out, we have things that uh, information coming into our eyes, sense of sight, sense of touch and smell and taste and so forth, that that is the most primitive source of experience, according to Locke. Then Whitehead says, the more primitive types of experience are concerned with sense reception, not sense perception. He says, sense reception is unspatialized. Sense perception is spatialized. So, there's more to this, but let's talk about the spatialized bit first. So sense reception has nothing to do and matters and matters not whether there's relationships among objects, whether there's you know the perception of extension. So space and time doesn't matter to reception, but it does matter to sense perception, right? That's how all that seems to us. Everything we perceive is already in a temporal and a spatial context, right? I see something. But it's not just information. It's something over there. It's something, but then there's space and distance and, and uh, you know, uh, relationships that come along with that. So since perception has this added component of being spatialized, and he's saying reception is actually simpler than that, and it has nothing to do with space or time. He says, in sense reception, the sensa, by that he just means sense data, the sensa are emotional forms, so what do you think of that? Some sort of emotional feeling? It doesn't require any space or time dynamics at all, does it? It's just something that you feel. It's just something that is for a moment. You know? Now, the question is, is something like that more fundamental than what we see with our senses, or experience with our senses? And to ex explain this, I'm going to use an example from Jordan Peterson again. Um, he says something like this. Well, he, he talks about this in a different way, but um, he says that, let's say we stumble on a snake. We're walking down a path at a park, and we don't, we're just having a nice stroll. We're enjoying the nature. We don't expect to come across a snake, and maybe it's poisonous, and, you know, uh, before we even have a chance to think, right, we just notice it. We see it out of the corner of our eye on the path right in front of us before we even quite recognize that it is a snake, we react. We, it's an instinctive thing. And the reaction comes with feeling and behavior all at once, right? Fear and flight. I'm going to jump back. I'm going to move out of the way. And Jordan makes this really clear when he says, look, if that wasn't the case, if you didn't have this emotional reaction um, quickly, you're going to get potentially bit and you're going to die. So evolutionarily, you, you have an experience of the snake before your senses have even had a chance to become ideas, to be, to be conceptualized. Before you know what you've seen is a snake, let alone what type of snake, if it's poisonous or not, before you have any time to think about any of that, you have the emotional reaction which causes you to jump out of the way. And if that wasn't the case, human beings wouldn't be around. We would all have been bitten by snakes and run over by wildebeests and fallen off cliffs. So this emotional feeling and these emotional forms to Whitehead 
are simpler even than sense perception. Now he says, sensa, again, we're talking about sense data or these emotional forms. Sensa constitute the lowest category of eternal objects. They do not express a manner of relatedness between other eternal objects. They are not contrasts or patterns. They are relevant in the realization of the higher grades of experience. So again, by that he means we're talking about the simplest form of experience. And he says that those things are part and parcel to more complex or higher forms of experience. So you might say um, that the emotion that you feel when you jump away from a snake, once you have a chance to realize, assuming you're out of the way and you're not dead, once you have a chance to realize uh, there's more to it, you know, there's the visual idea of the snake, maybe there's identifying what type of snake it is, how it moves, all this other information comes flooding into you. And flooding into you is a good way of putting it because this is what I mean by ingression and existing within. That information floods into you and it becomes attached to the emotion that you've already felt. And that becomes a greater experience. It's not just this emotional feeling and reaction, this instinctual automatic sort of a thing. It is uh, much more complex. Now it has knowledge associated with it. That might be a good way of putting it. All right, so to try to understand emotional forms as the lowest category of eternal object, um, I want to I put it this way. You might imagine um, feeling emotions or feeling um, as a fetus or as a, um, uh, you know, very, very, you know, early stage fetus, let's say. Something that you probably don't have, let's say, the uh, developed biology to where the fetus is experiencing other things, right? Maybe it doesn't, its eyes, its ears, all those things aren't developed well enough, so it doesn't get any of those experiences. But you can imagine, at least I can, that it feels comfort, you know, when mom eats and it gets that nourishment. Or it feels comfort with the warmth and the dark of being in the womb. It feels that. Um, There's, there's, uh, some interesting research, uh, it's old, but you may have heard of it before, where they did experiments with um, rhesus monkeys, I believe, and they took the children away from the mother, and uh, some of the children were just allowed to exist uh, without any really without any care, without any um, interaction with uh, um, uh, the, their mother. And then the others were given like a um, wire, it was like a wire form that they covered with fur, and they put the babies on it, so it almost felt like they were holding on to their mother. And they were just proving that if you don't give comfort, if you don't give touching and caressing and warmth to uh, really young uh, babies, that they will not flourish, and many of them will die. Um, Jordan Peterson put it this way, he said, um, he said that it, Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this up. That 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 type of a com- of comfort and that type of uh, physical stimulation encourages the psyche to continue, right? To not give up. Um, I've talked about this before. It's like uh, you know the idea of being born. You know, there's a way of thinking about that where you're you're in this place that where all your needs are satisfied. You know, your mother eats, you get the nourishment, you're never hungry, you're never cold, nothing's being asked of you, you're not, you know, you're not uh, tired, you're not strained, you're not stressed. There's not a lot of negative emotion. Like, that seems like an ideal situation for some people. 
It's like the way people feel when they put that heroin needle in their arm and, and, and drift off into oblivion. Um, and when they're born, when children are born, you're sort of ripped from that experience and you're, you're, you're given an opportunity to exist or to, to not exist. And some children don't flourish. Some, some babies don't survive. Some people commit suicide. Some people, you know, do drugs until they die. Um, it's, it's like wishing for oblivion, wishing for the state where everything is taken care of for you. And, and you're, you know, you, you have this sense of comfort. So there's something deeply, deeply true, I think, about, about the notion that uh, a fetus, let's say, that, that isn't capable of feeling any other sense experience still has emotional experience. That's all I'm trying to say. All right, he goes on. He says, A sensum requires wider complex eternal objects, which include it as a component. So this seems to be a little bit contradictory to what he said before, honestly. And there's going to be a lot of that in today's episode, which is partly why I thought this was, you know, my least favorite reading so far in Whitehead, exposing so many of these internal contradictions that seem to be contradictions to me. When Whitehead said in the beginning that he was going to structure his metaphysics to avoid, you know, um, those, those sorts of internal contradictions. So this the claim being made here is that these emotional feelings require more complex um, experiences. Uh, like I was describing earlier where I said the emotion can kind of, um, the emotional response to the snake can be included with all the knowledge, information that you're getting afterwards, after that emotional experience that you're taking in and they kind of join together. He's saying that the emotion requires those other things. Previously, he, he said that no, that that, the emotions were the most simple form of experience. Now he seems to be saying that they that they can exist without attaching themselves to uh, a wider uh, complex of experience. All that knowledge stuff we were talking about. So, so emotion requires accompanying sense data. Really? Why? Is emotion only elicited by objects of experience? That might be a good question. Do you only feel emotion attached to a person or a thing? Can you feel it just on your own without any stimulation? I mean, I want to say yes. So I, I don't know. I don't know what you might think, but I think Whitehead is starting to be a little wishy-washy on the front. And you can also see how breaking down experience into these simpler forms of experience and more complex forms of experience it seems to be like a lot of speculation like how, how can you say that one type of experience is any simpler than another and how do you measure that exactly how are you comparing them and how, what do you suppose that one experience that's simple has to attach itself to other experiences in order to like what like what kind of shit is this it seems like a lot of speculation to me all right, moving on. He says, it cannot be dissociated from its potentiality for ingression into any actual entity and from its patterned relationship with other eternal objects. So here is just more of the same, that this, this simple emotional form can't be dissociated from its, 
from its inclusion in other uh, in, in other kind of greater, more complex experience or its relationship among them. He says, each sensum shares the characteristic common to all eternal objects, that it introduces variables in form. Okay, this I like. This is a little bit of a, a recap of what he said in, in you know earlier parts of the book. But here he's just saying that these emotional forms, just like any eternal objects, uh, just like any of the uh, qualities of our experience, um, that they're that they're serving the same function, and that function is to introduce variables in form. So again, we talk a lot about potentiality and actuality, and this is the idea that Whitehead brings up when he talks about process. Something starts as potential. That that's what young. Oh, that's young. Excuse me. That's what Whitehead calls these uh, e eternal objects, um, and they become actualized. They become real through this process of concrescence that he talks about. So something that's potential has to become something real. And so something potential has to become something specific. And so I like to think about potentiality as infinite. I don't know how else, how else you could, you could uh, characterize it. So something infinite has to become finite. It has to become a specific thing. And, um, and so that's the form, right? The form that is given to potential, to make it something specific. So he talks about eternal objects being the thing that, that takes something infinite and makes it something finite and specific and experienceable. It takes potentiality and turns it into an experienceable world. So these eternal objects color experience by giving it form, by making it a certain type of experience. And I think what's interesting to me here is that Jung said... Carl, Carl Jung said the same thing about archetypes. So we think about our psychology. They're, these are the forms that, that we assume. We have these archetypal forms that exist in the collective unconscious, this potential realm, whatever that is, what Plato called nous. And through, through, through its expression in us, it, they become, these archetypes become real. They're actualized in us, in, in our behavior. All right, then he says, contrast elicits depth, and only shallow experience is possible when there is a lack of patterned contrast. So remember last week he was talking about intensities and feeling and how that's what, that's what reality is all about. So whatever it is that reality is, is something that can experience and wants to experience. Um, you know, that, that's sort of this idea of, the, of God or the will of God or, or what have you that God wants to experience. So God is the thing capable of experience and the world is created as a means of creating that experience, something like that. And when he's talking about intensities of feeling, it's like the more intense it is, the better it is. And again, that seems to be more speculation as far as I'm concerned. Do you think God has a scale of experience? Do you think God, if, that's, if, if God wants experience, that a a less intense experience, whatever that means, is any more important or valuable than a than a deeper, you know, experience. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying that depth of experience is is better, and that contrast is what makes that possible. And only shallow experiences are possible when there's a lack of contrast. 
And I can't help but talk about the Ouroboros again. Um, before I do, Plato said something that's fitting along these lines. Plato said, thinking begins when conflicting perceptions arise. Right? So we have something to think about when something happens that's unexpected or when there's um, cognitive dissonance. Right? Then, then we start really pondering. And we start really thinking, trying to make sense of things. So we have this connection where, he's, where he's, Whitehead's talking about contrasts and, and contrasts being necessary for experience. And Plato's saying that when those contrasts occur, that's when thinking begins. And so we have this connection again to mind and this idea of contrasts. And when Jordan Peterson talks about the Ouroboros, which is this symbol that we see in our um, earliest myths about the creation creation of, uh, of the universe and, and, and so forth, that it begins as a union of opposites, as, as a contrast. And I think that's really interesting for a lot of reasons. You know, a, a contrast is something that it brings this picture of my mind. I don't know if you guys have seen this symbol uh, for, for a god, uh, I think a Roman god, Janus. Janus is like this two-faced um, figure. And it's something like you need this contrast, you need this division for the one face to see the other, you know, for it to see what it itself is. It needs to be split into two and facing each other, something like that. It's like, ah, that's what I am. So I, that's what I think the world is, you know? It's our self looking back at us. It's, it's again, to Whitehead, ourselves and the world are both actual entities. We're a unity of experience. And this separation, this arbitrary separation that exists between us, this thing that we call our subjective perspective that makes the world seem like objects and not, and not part of ourselves. That that's this division, that's this limitation of the, of the infinite that's required to allow, to make experience possible, to allow us to look at what it is we are, to experience what it is we are. All right, he says, experience is the simplest grade, um, excuse me, experience of the simplest grade, which again is emotion, is response to the datum with its simple content of sensa. We've already, we've already said that. Motion being the simplest grade of experience. And that being a response, not a perception, not something that's active or requires thinking, something that's, in, that's innate, something that's immediate, something that is uh, instinctual. That brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call physics and metaphysics. He says, if we substitute the term energy for emotion and form of energy for form of feeling, we see that this metaphysical description of the simplest elements of actual entities agrees absolutely with the principles of physics. The datum in metaphysics is the vector theory in physics. Satisfaction in metaphysics is the scalar localization of energy in physics. The sensa in metaphysics are the diversities of specific forms under which energy clothes itself. Okay, so I think this is really interesting. I mean, truth be told, I don't understand this deeply enough. I don't know what vector theory is. I don't know what scalar localization of energy is. Um, but what he's doing is making these direct comparisons between the components of his metaphysics and the components of actual physics, 
and saying, look, these, if you change the language here, there's parallels. And the way that, that science has described the way the world works is identical to Whitehead, to what he's describing about experience. The last bit I think is interesting where he talks about sensa and metaphysics being the diversity of specific forms of energy. The reason is because just as changes as, as well as energy changes its expression uh, by changing its vibratory pattern, you know, energy is um, all different forms of energy are different f- patterns according to quantum physics. The pattern of vibration creates uh, a different atom, let's say. Um, so that the pattern, the vibratory pattern creates different forms of energy or matter. And I think there's a parallel with these emotional um, you know, changes as well. Like emotion has different forms as well. Different patterns that that, that that type of a feeling assumes. And that seems to come from the contrast that he was talking about earlier. You know, there's different forms of emotion. There's positive emotion, there's negative emotion, you know, regret and pain and, uh, you know, joy and all kinds of other, of other types of emotion. And so they take this form um, and, and so there's this talk about contrast and this talk about patterns. And I have a really difficult time not making the analogy between this vibratory explanation uh, of energy and uh, this changing pattern of emotion. All right, so here's where I'm going to get to something interesting. It doesn't really fit, but I have to tell you this because it's, I just can't help but notice it. In the midst of all of this talk, Whitehead says this, Modern idealism merely contributed the unhelpful suggestion that the phenomenal world is one of the inferior avocations of the absolute. All right, avocations is like a, like a minor occupation. It's like, you know, something that the absolute does, but not really an important thing that it does. And so what he's saying here is that modern idealism, which is the f- school of philosophy that believes what's fundamental is mind and not substance, but mind. He said that idea has only contributed the unhelpful suggestion that the phenomenal world is one of the inferior avocations of the absolute. The phenomenal world is sort of an uh, inconsequential side effect of whatever it is God is. So there's a criticism of idealism here by saying that all it's contributed all it's contributed is this unhelpful suggestion. You can see he's not saying anything good about it. And it seems to me strange and out of place as a criticism. It's no context really in, in this chapter why it should exist, why it should be put there. But it seems to me to be some kind of a buttressing against all this talk of mind and thought that he's been saying so far. The role that mind is assuming in his philosophy. I wonder... Is Whitehead suggesting suggesting that the phenomenal world, the creating of the creation of the world, of the cosmos, should that be considered a primary function of the absolute, or is there some deeper criticism here? I don't know. It's not clear. Like a lot of things in Whitehead, but it does seem strange where he's talking a lot about mind and thought and its, you know, causal and and fundamental role, and then decides here just to put in this little bit about how ideal, idealism is crap. I mean, you're talking, you're talking along idealistic lines and then you're saying idealism is crap. 
And I just don't know what I'm missing here. Maybe it's me. But there it is. Okay, then he says, Direct perception can be conceived as the transference of throbs of emotional energy, clothed in the specific forms provided by sensa. Okay, so here you have another analogy, really, to the scientific or the the quantum physics um, world. Uh, Quanta, just that word, um, comes from the idea that energy doesn't move in a continuous flow, but in little discrete packets. That's what they call quanta. So energy itself moving through the universe, creating all the things that exist and, and all the interactions between them, that that stuff's all happening as little throbs of energy, little packets of quanta going out into the world, following these specific patterns. And Whitehead is making the same, uh, the same connection to perception. Uh, we look out at the world and what we're perceiving is throbs of emotional energy. Um, those those throbs of emotional energy are clothed in specific forms provided by sensa, provided by our emotional reaction to them. I suppose if the emotional reaction I received from a snake was was like the same thing that I would feel from a, uh, holding my newborn child, um, that I would I would end up a dead man. Um, so it's important that the throbs of emotional energy take on a form that allows me to experience it. That allows me to have knowledge of it. He says, direct perception is the efficient causation operative in the world. And this is something that's baffled me. It baffled me when uh, David Chalmers said it. It baffled me when uh, Dr. Shersted Hughes said it. That consciousness is causation. Or that consciousness and causation are so deeply linked that it's difficult to even separate them. Which is what Chalmers said. Direct perception is the efficient causation operative in the world. So you have to know a little Aristotle here. What is efficient cause, final cause, that kind of thing. Efficient cause is the agent of change. The thing that makes the the change happen, specifically. It might not be the cause of that, the origination point, but it's the thing that actually makes the change happen. And he says direct perception is the efficient cause operative in the world. Again, sounds a lot like ideas from quantum mechanics, the observer effect, right? When I, when I have this quantum, uh, you know, objective, let's say, quantum expression um, of reality, that it is a wave pattern. But when you, when, but when you try to prove it, when you try to observe it, when you make an observation, it doesn't. It, it collapses. The wave function collapses and becomes a, a something with with sp- a specific, you know, uh, attributes. It becomes a particle and no longer a wave. And the observer is necessary for that to happen. You can think of the quantum, I do, you can think about the quantum wave, the quantum wave function as potential. But when it's observed, it collapses into reality. This is exactly like Whitehead talks about, the potential becoming the actual. And the agent of change is direct perception. Again, what does perception? You might say consciousness, but you might also say mind. He says it describes how ideas are absorbed into the subjectivity of the percipient and are the datum for its experience of the external world. Perception is the cause of potential coming into you and becoming through you actual. It's an idea like incarnation. Potential is something like God. Becoming actual is something like being made flesh. It's like, a, it's like the Jesus story, you know? 
Something like that. So perception is causal. It causes ideas to become the actual world. I wonder, is this support of the objects as ideas notion that we talked about earlier? Are objects made of ideas? Yeah, it's still, it's, this is not congruent with his criticism of idealism, which again, as you see over and over and over again. Mind is causal. I don't know how, I don't know how you avoid saying that mind is fundamental if you believe that mind is causal for the world, for the actual world. All right, he says, in the higher grades of perception, vague feeling differentiates itself into various types of sensa, touch, sight, smell, etc. And then he says, the animal body is the immediate part of the general environment for its dominant actual occasion, which is the percipient. Okay, that, that's an interesting thing. The dominant actual occasion. So you have to imagine that these actual entities, these experiences that join together to become societies of experience, these com more complex versions of experience, you might call human being one of those. He calls it dominant. And by that he means in charge. He means the one that has the subjective experience. The observer, right? And so there's a connection to mind again there. But I think what's important also is he's saying that the body is the most immediate part of our environment. So we exist within our bodies and we exist within the world, both of which are our environment. Okay, then he says, pure receptivity and transmission give place to the trigger action of life, whereby there is a release of energy and novel forms. So there's more to that. But just to that sentence, I have to say, what the fuck? What is it? What are you? What? This is the kind of speculation that I want to point out. Pure receptivity and transmission give place to the trigger action of life. Let's stop there for a second. So what does he mean by pure receptivity? He's talking again about the difference between perception and reception. So data comes into us. We receive it. And we have a, uh, a reaction, you know, we, we experience emotion. And he said that is the trigger action of life. That's what makes life happen. Now, I don't know, if you, if you think about life as psyche, um, spirit, you know, I don't know how to separate the idea of life from experience or consciousness. Um, you know, then, then maybe you have to presuppose an experiencer, and, and that's something that we, I would call life. I, I, think, I think that's fair. Um, so maybe there's a way of trying to make sense. But then he says, whereby there is a release of energy in novel forms. What does he mean by that? Like you receive data from, from the world or from yourself. You have a, a feeling, right? And that releases energy in novel forms. What, what do you mean? Where does this come from? And he says, the transmitted datum acquires sensa by the passage from the external world into the intimacy of the body. So the data acquires this emotional component um, by passing from the external world uh, into the body. He, then he gives an example. He says, the datum transmitted from the stone, you imagine a stone, becomes the touch feeling in the hand. So some object that exists outside of me, at least arbitrarily, because remember, outside of me, the whitehead isn't really a, isn't real exactly. 
um, but the object outside of me that's been objectified in the world becomes to me the feeling of it in my hand and maybe the sensation of it that I'm getting from my sight or whatever it is. So if data acquires emotional relevance or feeling by passing into the human body, it seems that eternal objects reside there in the body, not in potentiality, if they are already there, then where are they passing into from the body from and why? So these are the kinds of things that, that I want to point out. Like, I have questions. As the more he talks, the more inconsistent a lot of this seems. Maybe it's, maybe it's my own lack of understanding. Could very well be. Uh, I mean, I'll let you be the judge, I guess. Okay, that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call Perception. He says, perception is the causal efficacy of the external world. Okay, so we talked about we talked about causation already, and I think this is right along those lines. Then he says, perception is perception of the settled world in the past. Perception, in this sense, will be called perception in the mode of causal efficacy. So this has something to do with the limitations that, of our environment, right? Um, And, and I think what he means here when he says perception is perception of the settled world uh, in the past, he's talking about this objectified world for, for that, that, you know, for us is really made up of the experiences that came before it that created it, just like we're made up of other experiences. So is the world, right? We're all, this is a unity of experience to what it, we're all one thing. So what, when we perceive the world, we're kind of perceiving a settled reality that comes from the past. And he says, memory is an example of perception in this mode. For memory is perception relating to the data from some historical root. Okay. Moving on. He says, presentational, presentational immediacy illustrates the world in respect to its potentiality for subdivision into actualities and the scheme of perspective relationships they make possible. So remember, to Whitehead, experiences are going to have relationships with other experiences. They're going to come together to join societies and become new experiences that are more complex, and that process just goes on and on and on and on. And so the world, um, he says the world, in respect to its potenti potentiality for subdivision, uh, that means... Um, you know, to become uh, other experiences other than what it is. Um, presentant, presentational immediacy is, the, again, the way we perceive the world is, it's almost like perceiving the potentials for what the world can become. So this makes me think of, uh, this makes me think of, was it Michelangelo? Yeah, Michelangelo. Um, there's a story about Michelangelo when he was having the marble extracted from the mountain that he was going to use to carve uh, the statue David, famous statue David, um, that he stood there staring at the mountain of marble, and he was imagining David, you know, already carved and fully done. He was looking at this mountain and seeing in it what could be. Something like that. This is what I think he's trying to say. But then he says this, but it gives no information as to the real potentiality this is kind of like a veil of perception idea. Presentational immediacy tells us nothing about objective reality. It's representational. 
just as Descartes said that the idea of the sun is all we have access to. Right? We don't have access to the sun itself, only the idea of the sun. We have access to what exists in our mind, but not what exists in the objective world. There's a difference between our experience and the objective world, or at least there may be a difference. We just don't have any way of knowing it. And he says, presentational immediacy illustrates potential subdivision within a cross-section of the world, which is objectified for the percipient. Okay, that's what we've already said. What is illustrated is the potentiality for subdivision into actual occasions. Check. Okay. Here he says, the stone is a group of many actual occasions. So you can imagine the, the stone that we were just talking about as an example. It's made up of a bunch of uh, atoms, right? And that these are all entities just like you and I, according to, according to Whitehead. They come together to create the stone. So the stone is made up of a bunch of actual occasions. Then he says, but the stone and the percipient, you know, the person who's perceiving the stone, are connected together in a unison of becoming. A unison of becoming. It's like I'm a part of the same world that the stone is a part of at this, at this moment. And that will change. At some point, the stone will become atoms again. The stone will, will become you know, crushed and become a different object altogether. I will, I will disappear. But for now, I am connected to this stone, to the objectified world and all of the objects in it, in a unison of becoming. We're sharing this moment together where we're both becoming what, whatever we're going to be. And then he says duration is termed unison of becoming. So to Whitehead, time, or the perception of time, is simply our relationship to the objectified world of which we are a part. And when we go, or when those objects go, it'll be a new world. It'll be a new time. And so time is relative according to Whitehead, and also according to According to, according to relativity, according to Einstein. And it accords with Whitehead's notion of duration as attached to the subjective perspective of each actual entity, which rise and disappear again into creativity or objective immortality, as Whitehead says. And he says, in the philosophy of organism, the notion of organism has two meanings, interconnected but separable, the microscopic and the macroscopic meaning. The microscopic is concerned with the constitution of an actual occasion. The macroscopic is concerned with the givenness of the actual world, considered as the stubborn fact which at once limits and provides opportunity for the actual occasion. In our experience, we essentially arise out of our bodies, which are the stubborn fact of the immediate relevant past. We are governed by stubborn fact. It's interesting. I mean, he's saying that organism to him is the organism that you are. You know, the, the, the actual entities that come together to create what you are. That's the microscopic. But also the macroscopic, meaning this objectified world, this greater reality, this greater unity of experience that we are a part of, that we belong to, that we participate in. Both are organism. One thing. And they both constitute limits for us. The limitations of our bodies, of our minds, of the world that we exist in, of the physics that we're, you know, that we're existing within and, and, and beneath. 
And those are something like forms that limit the infinity of potentiality and make it something limited, specific, actual, real. And that brings me to my conclusion. Okay, so what have we learned? Well, we've learned that Whitehead doth protest too much when it comes to idealism. He seems to talk out of both sides of his mouth by degrading idealism while simultaneously proclaiming experience, the objectified world, and all the objects and subjects therein as arising from mind or as being in some fundamental way ideas of the mind. I do like the visual that this generates for me. You know, we are mind existing within mind ab aeterno. There is a certain fractal truth to this. We also learned that the very detailed model of reality and its mechanics that Whitehead proposes seems artificially complex. He seems to over-explain the nuts and bolts of process with a level of certainty that is impossible to verify. All of these merely seem like evidence in support of his ideas. It's like imagining a time machine and discussing in detail uh, how the flux capacitor would work when there is no such thing as a flux capacitor to begin with. A tower built upon sand. Maybe I'm being overly critical. Maybe I just don't understand. I'll let you be the judge. Beyond this, we learn something we all know already that our environment constitutes a limiting force on our potential. Our bodies and our environment set the upper limits of what is possible for us. Without a complex brain and opposable thumbs, we'd never have made it to the moon. If gravity were a hundred times stronger, or a billion years of organic decomposition hadn't filled the earth with petroleum for our use, we'd never made it to the moon. You get the idea. But to Whitehead, our bodies and the world are one and the same thing. They are experience. They are actual entities. And as he said, the order imposed upon them, which makes the world the world, comes from mind. He then goes on to explain how we receive the simplest data for experience in the form of emotional feeling. Contrasted to sense perception, reception, as he, as he calls it, is somehow automatic instinctive. It is immediately felt and requires no consideration. Feeling is advanced as another sense apart from sight, smell, taste, hearing. Another way of knowing. Again, I point out that sensing and feeling are capacities of mind. And we reach the icing on the idealist cake when Whitehead agrees with Descartes that objects are composed of ideas. Here, Whitehead admits that objects, including ourselves, are reducible to, to ideas. Now tell me again, where ideas come from, and where they exist. Oh, oh, in mind, you say. Hmm. A strange thing to hear from someone who dismisses idealism, don't you think? Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. 
It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>